Welcome to the Jewish Education Experience Podcast with your hosts, Yasmina and Ari, who will be uncovering gems of wisdom with Jewish educators from around the world. To support our podcast, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash Jewish Education Experience Podcast. Our guest today is Rabbi Johnny Solomon. Rabbi Johnny Solomon is an educator, scholar, editor, and virtual rabbi who provides online spiritual coaching, halachic consultations, and one-to-one learning for those who need a rabbi. Hello, Rabbi Solomon. Hello, shalom, and thank you so much for having me. (laughs) It's our pleasure. Welcome to our podcast. We're so excited to talk with you a bit more. Very, very excited. You're very kind, and I appreciate the warm welcome. Um, Will you please tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you began your journey in Jewish education? Sure, with pleasure. So you can tell from my accent, I'm from a little place called England. I now live in Israel. I moved here 10 years ago. I grew up in a traditional Jewish household, uh, going to Jewish schools, uh, quite good, with some teachers better than others. Uh, but I was always inspired to be a teacher. Initially, in fact, I wanted to be a maths teacher, a bit like my uncle. But when I went to yeshiva and was really drawn into the beauty and elegance of Torah, I said, no, that's what I want to teach. And straight after yeshiva, I came back to the UK and I started teaching in a Sunday school or what is known then as a cheder. So basically from age 19, I was already teaching in a formal classroom. And that led me to being hired in a Jewish school called Emmanuel College, where I worked very, very hard, developed curricula, eventually became the head of Judaic studies, trained to become a teacher, then started training teachers. Then I worked on a national curriculum project for Jewish schools in the UK, meaning I was writing curricula for the schools throughout the British Isles, for the Jewish schools, that is. And then I decided to take some time out to, uh, for, to study for Smicha. And then I returned back to the class and becoming head of Judaic studies at a girls' high school called Hasmonean Girls' School. And after that point in time, for various reasons, my daughters themselves were getting older. We decided to make Aliyah. But since then, for the past 10 years, I've been teaching in Midrashot, seminaries, adult education. I've been lecturing about Jewish education. I received a master's in Jewish education. I mark essays of students doing master's in Jewish education. And simply put, I'm very, very passionate about Jewish education. And the title teacher is very precious to me. It's very important to me because... Through the art of teaching, we can change lives, and certainly teachers who invest time in trying to educate as best they can, they change their own lives as well. Wow. Well, Rabbi Solomon, it's an honor to have you here. Are there any educators that have inspired you or who you particularly admire? So over the years, there's oftentimes people say a teacher becomes a teacher either because they're inspired by great teachers or I had lousy ones. I think I had some lousy ones and I had some great ones. In fact, some years ago, over Hanukkah, I wrote eight different pieces about eight of my different teachers, eight days for eight teachers, really explaining how each of them you know, inspired me, touched a part of my life, and lifted me and guided me in terms of the choices I've made. But rather than boring you with all eight of those, I'll mention just a few of them. One is a former head teacher of mine called Mr. Philip Skelker. Most people wouldn't have heard of him but he was a head teacher of a school called Carmel College, then became a head teacher called Emmanuel College, where I worked for him for six years. And he was just an amazing head teacher. 
He was an amazing head teacher in terms of connecting with students. He made sure to know the name, something about every single child, and made sure to talk to them very, very regularly. But also, he gave teachers the room, the space, he empowered us to grow as teachers. And I think that I wouldn't be the teacher I am today without the kind of encouragement and support that, that Philip gave me. Another great teacher, again from the UK, is Rabbi Sachs. He was a great teacher in a slightly different sense, not bound by a particular classroom, but the way in which he engaged with people. The way he shared ideas was really extraordinary. The way he taught us how to use language and intersperse facts with stories uh, really gave us a masterclass every time of how to create what we may call a sticky moment where students, where learners, where listeners felt engaged with the ideas that he was sharing. I want to mention uh, here in Israel, we have a number of great teachers, people like Shani Taragun, you may have heard of. Recently, I was traveling with her. She's an extraordinary Tanakh teacher, somebody who lives, breathes Tanakh. And that means when she teaches ideas, it's merely an expression of who she is. I was recently traveling a taxi with her in the Mizrahi UK conference, and I shared a Dvar Torah, and she said, surely that's based on this Rashim, based on this word in the Torah. I said, most people appreciate Dvar Torah. You can tell me the source of it before I've even explained it. It shows how she lives and breathes the ideas that she teaches herself. And one final person, a dear friend of mine, Rabbi Dr. Rafi Zari, may have heard of him, the head of the London School of Jewish Studies, a remarkable teacher, somebody who's created a framework where so many younger teachers and older teachers have been able to qualify somebody himself who has taught a range of ideas to a range of people and done so with a great amount of humility, again, with a sense of empowerment. And he's enabled generations of teachers to now impact schools in the UK, schools in Israel, schools in America. Those are just a handful of them, but there are plenty, plenty more. Wow. This sounds like quite the number of influencers there. Thank God. If you're lucky to meet special people, it's important to not nod in their direction and express appreciation. And I've done to most of them publicly uh, and to all of them, at least privately. But these are people who have guided me, as with many others, too. And teachers need teachers. And I'm blessed to have had teachers. When we say, right, make for yourself a teacher or a rabbi. Are some of these people the same people there? Do you see that as I'm just curious, you know, is it important to have kind of one rabbi or do you see all these people as being of kind of a fulfillment of that? I think there's a difference between a teacher and a rabbi, although certainly a rabbi is a teacher. I was lucky to have a very, very special rabbi who guided me for most of my life, the same rabbi who did my bar mitzvah, who married me, who I took my first child to for a blessing and who really was a go-to person for many, many years. He passed away since, but uh, his name was Diane Gershon Lopian. And he was really my primary rabbi in terms of teaching me how to be a rabbi. And I'm since qualified. In fact, I'm now what I call myself the virtual rabbi, rabbi to those without a rabbi. And he certainly continues to be a model of being there for people, of a model of somebody who invests time learning to our sources, but also learning about the people for whom he is guiding. So I think one has to be clear who is their primary rabbinic influence. But certainly I have many, many teachers. And as I say, I've mentioned some, there are plenty others. And each have added their own tone, their own color into my life at different moments, at different times. They've been there. They've said the right thing. They've given me the right nudge. And I think that's important to remember. You know, a rabbi and a teacher isn't just there to endorse the way in which you wish to go. They're there to push you in the way that you should be going. Being a proactive rabbi and a proactive teacher is important. 
And many of these people have given me nudges on the way. And I'm very, very grateful for it. I'm wondering how you shifted because you worked in a cheder, you taught in the classroom, and now you're a virtual rabbi. How did that shift come about? Ultimately, I say I was passionate about being a teacher, and I continue to be just this morning. I've given a number of classes, and, uh, and they fill me with so much exuberance just to be able to have the privilege of sharing ideas with younger people, with older people. At the same time, I trained to be a rabbi because there's a certain skill set which I think I have, which really is reflective of that role. There's also certain skill sets which aren't. I'm much more of an introvert than many other rabbis. And so, to my mind, they'll offer different opportunities to be a rabbi in pulpits that they didn't quite speak to me. So I wanted to try and figure out how I could be the rabbi I want to be within the right way, within the right uh, framework. I'm certainly a strong believer that technology is a way to reach many people, uh, especially as we see in every generation a rising numbers of assimilation and disconnection from Jewish peoplehood. And I decided, especially since making Aliyah 10 years ago and living basically not in the major cities, I live now in a place called Evan Shmuel, which is basically about half an hour north of Beershev. I said, what am I going to do here to maintain my connection to the Jewish people? And I started to write and I write to our ideas every day on Dafiomi and things like that. And I created basically a virtual community of people who seem to like the ideas I share. And through getting to know me, I got to know them and they started asking me questions. And really that organic process of being a rabbi without, you know, of a shul without walls of people around the world who seem to feel that either they don't have a guide or they do, but they can't talk to them. And that's what I've become. And I'm now developing that as a meaningful part of the things that I do. So that works alongside my teaching. So I'm a teacher, I'm a rabbi, I see a great synergy between the two. And in so doing, hopefully I try and guide people through my being a rabbi and uplift people, both through being a teacher and also being a rabbi. Okay, so how do you talk about God? And how might this differ with the various age groups you teach? So let's, let's, you know, it's an interesting thing that Maimonides does. Maimonides, when talking about God, says we don't know what quite God is, so let's talk about what God isn't. It's called negative theology, right? So I'd say let's begin by saying how I don't talk about God. I don't talk about God exclusively philosophically because I believe that our relationship with God is personal and emotional, so that's important. Beyond this, I speak about my relationship with God because I know other people sometimes have different relationships with God just as much as they have different relationships with other people. And beyond that, I don't speak about most aspects of God that isn't explicitly stated in the Torah with the kind of absolute certainty that some people speak. So if the Torah says, and God did X, then I say, well, God did X. But all too often, people have a certain assurity the excess confidence in knowing the ways of God, even when God hasn't quite given us that absolute clarity. And so I try and speak about God with a certain sense of humility. So I speak about God not exclusively philosophically, or that includes it too. I speak about God emotionally and personally, because I think that's what a real relationship is like. And I speak about God while speaking confidently about what we know of God, but also speaking with humility uh, and a lack of absolute certainty about things we don't 100% know about God, or we can't presume to know. Right, that makes sense. Do you find it difficult to do that via the virtual setting versus in person? I don't see much of a difference. You know, obviously, it's nice to talk in person, but 
the majority of people that I meet virtually, I don't get to see in person. They're, they're in the States, right? they're in South Africa, they're in Israel, they're in Europe, they're in Australia. I use a virtual framework because that's where I get to meet the people who wish to talk to me, who feel that they have some kind of a topic or question they wish to address that for whatever reason they can't get answered or don't feel that they've found the person they want to answer that particular thing. What I do find is a lot of the questions being asked of me are rooted in misunderstandings of emunah, meaning people thought X about God, but in fact, that's not a dogma in Judaism. And by presuming it is a dogma in Judaism, it can lead to various other theological complications down the way. So to take a simple example, if somebody presumes that any time a relative is sick, they've done something wrong, then whenever their relative is sick, they're going to start basically beating themselves up because they'll say, it's all my fault. That's not dogma that we must believe that. In fact, it's highly questionable that we believe that whatsoever. So when people come to me a little bit confused, what I try and do is disentangle their emunah interpretations, understandings, what they've been fed all too often by teachers who haven't done their due diligence. You see, it's interesting. When you train to be a math teacher, you learn math. You've got to go to university. When you train to be a Judaic studies teacher in certain countries, you need to be qualified in other countries. There's no such thing as a Judaic studies qualification, such as in the UK. There's no such thing. So that means when somebody goes into a classroom, they have a degree in something, but it doesn't mean they've spent a meaningful amount of time really immersing themselves in the discipline, studying that particular area. And even if they have gone to yeshiva or midrashah, they may well have studied Bible or halakha. That doesn't necessarily mean they've been studying emunah machshava. So when students ask questions, actually the teachers are often highly unqualified to answer. A lot of work needs to be done to make sure that teachers receive the right training for the kind of conversations they're expected to maintain and develop and foster in classrooms. I think there's often bad education, not out of malice, but out of ignorance. The issue is, though, if a student doesn't know any different, that can carry and stay with them for many, many years. And those words matter. And those errors of emunah matter and can sometimes be a great burden on the heart and soul on that person's life in years to come. You mentioned bad education. So education or chinuch in Hebrew can be an amorphous term. How do you define education? Well, Chazal interpret the word chinuch as dedication, right? We talk about the, like the Chanukah, the idea of dedicating, you know, the house of worship and things like that. And in general, we understand education is a commitment, is a dedication to understanding Torah and understanding God through our study of Torah. And I certainly believe that educators need to be dedicated both not just to what they teach, but who they teach. And people who study need to foster a sense of dedication of the subject matter. It's not just a cold subject, but it's one that speaks to them, one that they connect to. That's really the art of education, helping people who initially are unfamiliar with a series of ideas, feel a connection to those ideas that becomes personal. They dedicate themselves to exploring them further. And so that dedication is itself education. It's a leaning forward and saying, I want to know more. And therefore, when it comes down to Jewish education, we need to make sure that people feel interested. We need to make sure that it sounds and it, and it is presented as something that resonates and is personal or possibly personal to the lives of all the learners in the classroom. If it's just facts, then you'll learn facts. 
But that's not Jewish education. That's just kind of regurgitation. Any tips as educators of how to do a better job of that and really establishing that connection? My feeling is if a teacher is not inspired, they have no hope in hell of inspiring others. So we need to make sure we have passionate, emotionally charged, inspired teachers. That doesn't mean, by the way, that every class needs to be inspirational. No, every class has to be rooted in facts. You know, there is a bread and butter of lesson planning, of learning outcomes. But nevertheless, you have to be passionate about understanding why it's important to teach what you're teaching enough that when a student asks you why we're we learning what we're not learning, you'll be able to give an answer in a confident and intellectually honest way. So we need teachers to understand the importance of what they're learning. The issue is that many schools still have curricula which are based around training towards, let's say, attending yeshiva and seminary, when many of the students of those schools aren't going to be attending yeshiva and seminary. So we're giving them the wrong skills for the life they're about to lead, and there can be a deep mismatch. And we need to know that there are different types of Torah. There's a beautiful idea explained by Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, when Yaakov was about to go to the house of Lavan, having already lived in his father's house, Yitzchak's house, for many, many years, he took a detour for 14 years to what is known as a Shiva of Shem and Eva. It's a kind of a mythical institution where Shem and Eva used to teach moral values in the Middle East. And Yaakov Kamenetsky basically says, why does he do this? He's already studied from his father. Why does he go to Shem and Eva? And he draws a beautiful, I think, important distinction. He said his father, Yitzchak, never left the land of Israel. Yitzchak was basically the yeshiva kind of guy, which is wonderful. And if that's going to be you, that's great. And you never leave the yeshiva kind of the religious setting. That Torah is good for you. But Yaakov was going into basically a spiritual jungle. He was going to House of Lavan. And he needs to learn spiritual survival skills. And his father couldn't teach him that. So he had to go to Shaman Eva, who lived through the Mabel, who lived through the Darflaga, the Tower of Babel. And they were able to give him the skills and the knowledge to know how to survive during times of spiritual turmoil. With that same idea in mind, I think we train a lot of students learning the Torah of Yitzchak when they need to learn the Torah Shema Eva. They have to learn how to Jewishly survive. And if we don't give them that knowledge and that skills, they won't survive. And we're seeing those numbers very, very readily coming from schools, coming from universities. It's not to say that schools are bad. It's, the question is, are we teaching the right things to most of those students knowing the kind of choices they're likely to be making. And in some instances, the answer is absolutely yes. And in some instances, the answer is absolutely no. And so we need to teach what I'd call survival Torah. What does it mean to be a Jew when you're the minority? And what do you need to know? How do you need to live? If you only teach how to keep kosher in a kosher neighborhood, that's wonderful if you expect the kid to only live in a kosher neighborhood. But if you never teach how to keep kosher, when the kitchen you're going to isn't, right? When the stores you're buying food for don't sell mostly kosher food, then you set a kid up for failure. And I think that some schools aren't being realistic about the life choices of their students. And in so doing, unknowingly, or at least unknowingly, but certainly without malice, setting the kids up for a certain form of religious or spiritual failure. So I can see that it's essentially setting them up with Jewish life skills, right? Right. Well, there's... 
The question isn't, are you setting up a Jewish life skills, but which Jewish life? Are you uh -huh. setting the students up for Jewish life that they're going to move to Haranoff and everything's going to be perfect? That's great. If you're setting them up for Jewish life skills with a Haranoff skill set, but in fact, they're going to be moving to some kind of place in the Midwest uh, where they're going to be the only religious family, then maybe that's not necessarily what they need to be learning, or at least certainly for the majority of the time. So yeah, Jewish survival learning skills, shall we say, or it's not even about learning. The knowledge of how to live as a Jew when you are a minority, how to stay strong as a Jew, these are not chidushim that I'm saying. The first halachan, the Tushul Chanukh, tells us that we should learn to be as bold as a leopard to serve our creator. That's a challenge. How do we do that? And the commentaries say, even when people tease you, and when people are unkind to you about your religious loyalties, you need to stay strong. Well, how are we teaching our kids that? Because a lot of kids are facing pressure, and they bolt because they haven't developed that spiritual backbone, which is actually critical, which we've developed over many, many centuries. Jews overall are safer now than evermore. Jews overall are choosing not to be Jewish now more than evermore. What's happened is precisely because we've not maintained that sense of how do we stay strong in those kind of situations, that, and we've just presumed that everything is always going to work out well for them, that I think that when students find themselves in trouble, they don't quite know how to respond. Since you brought up Torah, how can we help our students build a strong Torah foundation? Well, we need to define what that means. One needs to explain, is that Torah knowledge or is that Torah skills? Torah for what? Simply put, if somebody says, I want my kid to know what's in the Torah, I say, well, give them the best English translation and read it like 10 times. You want them to know what's in it? They should read it. That's a no-brainer. By the way, most of the times we don't do that. Why? Because we think we're selling out by doing that because we feel we have to teach kids how to learn Torah and Hebrew. That's great. But by the time they've developed the Hebrew skills to be able to decode the Torah, oftentimes they're just disinterested because that's a lot of hard work. So when we need to be clear. Do we want our kids to know what's in the Torah? Do we want our kids to independently learn Torah texts? We want them to independently engage in Torah commentaries in Hebrew or in English. Being clear about what is the skills you're working towards, what is the learning outcome that you are trying to foster is critical. And I'd be, I'm somebody who strongly believes in skills. I'm sitting in a book, in, in a room filled with Hebrew books. I believe that Hebrew is essential. And by the way, one of the things I do still, one of the things I do currently is I'm the rabbi of an online a school for Jewish children in Europe, or an online Jew Jewish supplementary school for kids in Europe. And what do we teach? We teach Judaic studies and we teach Ivrit, because Ivrit is critical. But you've got to start it young. If you don't do so, then the lack of knowledge of Hebrew means that oftentimes people feel that they're alienated from their primary texts. Make sure people feel that that text is theirs. Fundamentally, the most important thing you want to teach a Jewish kid in terms of their connection to Torah is that the Torah isn't somebody else's, it's theirs as well. And whatever way you can do that, whatever language you can give it to them, for them to say, this is my book, that is crucial. Because once a person feels it's only for the religious people, it's only for those kind of people, once they feel alienated from their own tradition, it's very, very hard to bring them back. Yeah, I wanted to get your thoughts on the difference between you know diaspora versus Israel. Just because you mentioned the Hebrew language and how important yeah. it is, obviously in Israel, you have, it's a different dynamic, right? Because they generally Hebrew is their first language, but it, it's maybe a little bit of a different Hebrew. 
you know, and based on your definition of education, the way that it's obviously different raising up Jewish people in Israel versus in, in these communities we have outside of Israel. In Israel, here I'm not going to contrast the most religious in Israel to the most religious outside of Israel. I'm going to contrast the most secular in Israel to, shall we say, the most secular Jewish schools outside of Israel. Is that fair? If you imagine you're a very secular kid in Israel, and most of my family are secular, so I can very much uh, speak with some form of authority. So what, so what are you going to know? Firstly, obviously, you're going to speak Hebrew. That doesn't necessarily mean you're necessarily going to be able to interpret or read comfortably the Tanakh, because that's biblical Hebrew. But still, you speak the Hebrew language, a lot of key words are familiar to you. But within being part of Israel, you know, the festivals are part of the cultural heartbeat of the nation. You know that Pesach is coming because it's everywhere, in all the stores, right? It's in, in all the streets, in all the TV advertisements. You know that Shavuot is coming because it's, you know, a master chef they're making cheesecake three weeks beforehand. Even if you're the more secular Israeli, there are certain things which maintain the heartbeat of your Jewish soul because the festivals, because the language, because the values, because even very secular Jews say, they you throw out phrases, which are actually Talmudic phrases, which have become part and parcel of the fabric of the lexicon of modern Israel. Contrast that with outside of Israel. Obviously, you don't have Hebrew, but you're having to make a choice. And there was interesting, a documentary in Israel a couple of years ago, contrasting the Israeli mindset and the American mindset, where basically made the argument that a Jew in America is a Jew by choice, which is in many ways a very impressive thing. But that's an active choice. You have to choose it. And you need to choose to make reminders. TV adverts, I'm going to talk about cheesecake before Shavuos. You're not going to see matzah apart from in the Jewish stores. And so your framework is something you have to build. Now, in Israel, it's built in the street. It's built in the culture. Outside of Israel, it's built in the school. It's built in the shul. The school and the shul there play a whole different role to the school and the shul here. You rely heavily on the school and the shul there, and they become extraordinary influences in terms of the life of the modern Jew. Here in Israel, they're not particularly, the school is, of course, but the shuls are just places where people, or at least where some people go to pray. So it's a, it's a whole different experience. And as Rabbi Sachs often used to say, Jews in Israel need to learn from the diaspora Jews, and Jews in diaspora need to learn from the Israel Jews because there are qualities that each have that each can learn from and try and emulate. Wow. Um, so what would you say is the biggest challenge that you've faced as an educator? Every educator makes mistakes. Uh, I've made plenty of mistakes. Mistakes with misreading students, misreading classes, getting it wrong, having bad lessons. Somebody's been teaching them now like, I'm 46 years old. I've been teaching in a formal classroom since I was 18 and informally even before. You make mistakes and you kind of say to yourself, oh, I should have done that. Or I should have uh, not taught that class instead of that class. Or I should have been more adaptable. Those things bother me because I know that education matters. I know that even when teachers forget, students don't. You know, just a few weeks ago, I was in the UK. I met up with an old student of mine. And I hadn't seen him for a very, very long time. The last time I was teaching that school was 2006. So I haven't seen him for 16 years. And we had a nice schmooze. And he said, do you remember that time? I'm thinking, I, I don't exactly remember that time when. But for this kid, it was like yesterday. For me, it was 16 years ago. And it happened. I didn't do anything particularly 
you know, wrong, but something, one of his friends weren't nice to him, and he wondered what the teachers were thinking. I said, I, I, I don't remember what I was thinking 16 years ago. But knowing that whenever you have the privilege of being an educator, you can shape lives and you can break lives. And so I carry that with me uh, very, very sincerely. I know that there are things I probably could have done better. At the same time, I'm pleased of some of the things I did do, things where I pushed myself uh, beyond perhaps how I should. And oftentimes teachers face the burnout. I used to push myself crazy. I often did all-nighters once a week, just trying to create more curricula, help my colleagues, help my students, just be there for them. And you can only maintain that for a good few years, and then you kind of just get old. But basically, my regrets are probably that the times where I know of that I could have done better, I should have done better. At the same time, I'm pleased of certain things I've done. I'm pleased of how I handled certain situations. I'm pleased that I'm able to talk to a student who I hadn't seen for 16 years, and he was thrilled to see me, and plenty others too. And there's something wonderful about knowing that you did write enough, that it can be many decades afterwards, and a former student is thrilled to see you and wants to tell you how they're doing, and you're able to start a new chapter in that relationship. Wow. You're obviously here today still very passionate about Jewish education. So how, how do you stay motivated? I'm a learner. That's the most important thing. You know, we talk about lifelong learners. Every day I learn and every day I teach in different ways. I teach through my writing. I teach through the class, classes that I give. And that inspires me. I also am I'm somewhat self-critical. I say I could have done things differently. Being a real teacher means bringing your whole self. And that means that the storms that you experience are at times reflected in who you are when you're in the classroom. Who I am now is different to who I was 10 years ago, for good and for the bad. And, and so I, I maintain my passion because I always want to share a new idea to a new generation who I think needs to hear this. And sometimes who I feel needs, who in, in that case, I believe I need to be sharing it because I too need to hear it. And that's crucial. You know, if somebody really wants to learn things, they should teach. The person ultimately I'm teaching all the time when I'm teaching others is me. And so I'm passionate because I believe we can grow through learning. We can become better people through learning. And the privilege of knowledge brings a responsibility to share. I'm a strong, strong proponent of that. So everything that I've been lucky to learn, I say, okay, so how do I share this? How to make it more available? I strongly believe in the democratization of Jewish education. Heschel says that's what Rashi did. He says Rashi democratized Jewish education. I think we all need to do that. The internet's a wonderful way to share ideas. I've always been a strong sharer. Anything that I've written, I share. Very, very happy to anybody who is interested, anybody who wants. And so, yeah, the more I learn, the more I share, the more I share, the more feedback I get, the more excited I get because I know that every new day, every new week, every new month, there are challenges that need to be addressed. And I'm, I strongly believe that the Torah has some answers to some of those questions. Yeah, we definitely agree with that. And I like what you said before about you learning and, and wanting to teach and, and how you learn through teaching too. In our conversations with other educators, we've learned that there's been a shortage of Jewish educators. What advice would you give to new Jewish educators who are just beginning their journey? I pause because there is something that people need to realize, which is to be a professional Jewish educator is a wonderful thing. 
but really great educators are educators even become they even before they become professional Jewish educators. You have to just want it. Like I'm an educator. If you pay me, that's great because I got to pay my bills. But truth be told, even if you didn't, I'd still teach because I need it. It's my lifeblood, right? Uh, it's my oxygen. I can't not teach. I can't not share the things I've learned. And so if somebody's at the beginning of their journey, I'd want them to want it. I want them to be hungry. I want them to understand that they're going to get knocks. They're going to have lousy days. They're going to have lousy classes. They're going to make mistakes. I'm not happy for that, but it's just you've got to be realistic about it. But if they're driven you know, within their kishkas, as I'd say, if they're really, really driven to want to share, want to teach, and they care deeply about the people they're teaching, it's not about them. It's about the learners. It's about the students. Then they'll do okay. But if they're doing it because it's a job, I'd say find another one because education is a work of heart. You know, it, it comes from within. It's um, it's a calling, and uh, of course, one needs training, and of course, one needs to be qualified, and of course, there's skills that one needs to have to be able to manage classrooms and manage particular students and manage particular situations. But uh, I believe that one should come to the classroom feeling that it's a privilege to be there. I do every time I'm teaching. I'm humbled by the ability to share with others, and it's a great moment to be able to do so. And lacking that, I'd say people should reconsider. If a person has that, they'll figure everything else out because that internal drive will overcome all the other hurdles. And that's essentially what education should be. So nowadays we try, we're trying to work to professionalize Jewish education more and more. That's fantastic. But that shouldn't undermine the importance of the individual being hungry to learn, being hungry to teach, caring deeply about students, and knowing that what they do matters. Yeah, and it seems like we're in unprecedented times now in terms of the ability to learn and teach you know, with technology and all this stuff and going into the post-COVID world, hopefully. What does successful Jewish education in the future look like, do you think? Successful Jewish education is going to be the same. It's about people feeling connected, people feeling a sense of commitment and dedication, a bond between who they are, what they're learning in terms of their understanding. It's going to help them grow and become better people. That is a timeless thing, and we shouldn't forget it. What COVID showed us is lots of things can change quickly and unexpectedly. I did MA thesis on the impact of smartphones on the yeshiva seminary experience some years ago, in which I was very, very clear that we need to figure out how to use smartphone technology and other laptop technology, tablet technology more effectively in the classroom. I already wrote this three, four years ago because I saw these as being great educational tools, which were not being harnessed in the most effective way possible rather than teachers using technology they were scared and they were trying to ban them from classrooms because they thought that they always had to be disruptive there's no question that studies until now have understood that smartphone technology is disruptive but until now we've never really considered how can we turn these technologies around to be an asset in the classroom covid showed us that we had to use Certain tools that until now were considered to be alien to the classroom and considered to be unhelpful. It's a shame that it took a global pandemic for us to teach us that lesson, but it did. Nevertheless, I still think that in many instances, 
the level of understanding and discourse about how we take Jewish education to the next generation using technologies we have is still in its infancy. And we need to think carefully. Are there things students have in their hand that help them connect to the rest of the world that can help them connect to Judaism? To my mind, the answer is absolutely yes. And we need to train teachers to be more confident in helping students use what they have to connect to what we want them to connect to, because a failure to do that is, uh, is the greatest uh, misuse of opportunity I think we've had in the modern world. So what, will, what is the future Jewish education? Well, Jewish education needs to be passionate, needs to be one like we've seen before, especially through the, the internet, where so much more information is now available to so many. That's great. That's data. But we still need teachers who care and students still want to be cared for. We still need classes where ideas are taught simply uh, and clearly and where students review material so they really foster a sense of ownership of what they've got. There is a need to not ignore the bread and butter of learning because of the dazzles of technology. There's also a need to engage technology in order to take education further. In terms of the future, one final thing, which is nowadays teachers think that because they can get things quicker, they need not to immerse themselves sufficiently in their knowledge of material. That means when I was young, I had to know my material before I went into the classroom because I, I was just there. I wasn't able to bring a library of ideas with me. With the internet, people kind of say, well, I can just kind of get material, get source sheets, you know, uh, from wherever things are. I don't need to know the material so well. I believe that a teacher needs to know their material back to front. If you're teaching Sefer Malachim, you need to know Sefer Malachim. If you're, if you're teaching Masechet Gemara, you need to know that Gemara. If you're teaching a Pasuk, you need to know that Pasuk. Nothing will ever get away from the need for teachers to be fully immersed in and, and absolutely inspired by what they're teaching. And we need to make sure that teachers understand that that preparation takes time and there are no shortcuts to real preparation because if we try and make shortcuts to the things that matter most, at the end of the day, Teachers know only a little bit, and students know even less. Torah Mina Shamayim makes a big difference for how we're educating students, depending on where the teacher is coming from. So obviously, nowadays, with all this information, you know, we've heard about disinformation and things like that. So how can we protect ourselves, I guess, from some of the information out there that is not conducive to some of the more traditional viewpoints? A major idea that Rabbi Sachs taught us is importance to educate confidently. If one understands what absolute beliefs in Judaism and what are areas where there's some form of negotiation because there is either machloket about something or it's not absolute dogma, even though people claim it is, then you're able to move forward to these conversations with relative ease. If a person digs in their heels, is really ignorant about the true nature of Tom in a Shamaim, then they're going to actually they may win battles and, and lose big wars. They may try and, you know, win an argument with a student in the classroom, but in actual fact, uh, make it look like uh, Judaism or orthodoxy or whatever uh, is intractable. So teachers need to know these things. As it came back to my point before, which is errors in emunah. If a teacher is going to talk about things relating to Torah and Shemaim, they need to learn what is Torah and Shemaim, what is that belief. To take a very simple example. The, the, the animamins, which are considered to be really the cliff notes of Rambam's 13 principles of faith, are only cliff notes. And a certain amount of license was taken to make these 
nice poetic short statements. In actual fact, Rao is much more nuanced, and he writes this, obviously, in his commentary to Mishnah Sanhedrin. So unless you really know what Ramam actually believes in the 13 principles, and you're just using the cliff notes, then you're always going to have overly simplistic understandings of key beliefs. It's like somebody trying to write an essay about Shakespeare, and they've only read the cliff notes. So if you're going to talk about topics and teach about topics, you need to know those topics. Once you know those topics, they're not scary in the slightest because you know what are the boundaries of Orthodox belief, but also you know that there is certain mishut, as they say in Hebrew, flexibility about certain ideas when they're not in direct conflict with core principles of which are only a handful. So teachers need to learn they need to not teach from a place of fear. Instead, they need to teach from a place of confidence. But that only comes with knowledge. And that obviously applies to lots and lots of different areas. If teachers teach from a place of fear, basically fear of them being caught out because they don't know that much, we're not going to do a good service to students. That's why training is important. Uh, and tr- teachers knowing their lanes, if you are not a Jewish philosophy teacher, don't teach Jewish philosophy. If, teach, if a school asks you to teach Jewish philosophy, say, I need to have a course on it. People always presume that a teacher who's often maybe only been to yeshiva for a year, maybe not even that, is qualified to teach everything. That's absurd. That's foolish. It's ridiculous. We need to have better systems and better training on particular topics before we ask teachers to go out and teach. And that is the responsibility of a head of Judaic studies. And I was a head of Judaic studies in two high schools. You need to know what, what teachers do I have here? What are their skill sets? What are their gaps? What is it fair for them to teach? What is it not fair to ask them to teach? I'm just curious, like you mentioned before, about the technology. Because I guess there's a worry, too, that we could depend on it too much. Do you think that there's a balance that we need to have also? Technology is is a platform. Technology isn't the knowledge. I mean, you have in the room that I can see you in, you have a whiteboard. You know, if imagine I'd say to a teacher, you're relying too much on the whiteboard. They'd say, no, I'm using the whiteboard to share ideas. Obviously, there are different ways of sharing ideas, and what the whiteboard is one of them. And and teachers sometimes speak. They you, you know they will use a whole range of different teaching techniques, including which one may well be writing. Similarly. Technology should form part of the learning experience in a classroom. That, to my mind, is obvious, uh, but that shouldn't become the be-all and end-all. But to rely on it too much in terms of a platform would be foolish. To rely on it too much in terms of a source of knowledge would be absurd. The teacher needs to teach. The teacher needs to be the source of knowledge. At the moment, technology can be a conduit for information. But information and education are two very different things. Information is facts. Education is figuring out how do I make those facts meaningful to a group of different people in my classroom. Each has their own different learning profile. That's what an educator does. And it's a work of art, and it takes years to get good at it. And we need to value that's what teachers bring to the classroom. They're not just a Google in a suit or in a dress, right? There's somebody who has a certain developed understanding of how to convey ideas in ways that students, having learned them, feel they're a part of them. That's teaching. Wow, that was beautiful how you said that. The primary place where we educate our kids is our home. And fundamentally, before we start fixing the schools in our neighborhood, we need to make sure that our homes are 
powerhouses of energy, of love, of powerhouses of parents who are role models. And through what we say and how we speak, through what we do and what is seen, so much is learned. We all too often underplay the home as the primary classroom for every person. And come, and you're more than welcome to come to Israel, come to my house, come to wherever I teach, whatever. But know that the first place where you're, and I know you're doing beautiful things yourselves, but the first place to do things right is your home. We really need to teach parents how to be educators because they are forms of educators. And we need to know that they also then empower teachers to continue to hold the baton in a certain age range of kids to teach certain skills. But then it becomes a partnership between school and parent. And when it works well, it's exemplary. It's so elegant. It's beautiful. But uh, education is an ongoing thing. I'll tell you one quick, quick thing, which is uh, there's a bracha that sometimes is said at a bar mitzvah called Baruch Shepatrani. And the Chavetz Chaim, in his Mishnah Burah commentary, understood that to mean that once a parent says that blessing, then the mitzvah chinuch is over. They're done. The kid is 13. He's an adult. No need to educate them anymore. And Rabbi Shulman Sohan Arbach basically said, what are you kidding? Education continues on and on and on. All too often we think that when a kid gets bar mitzvah, we're done. It's nonsense. Education is an ongoing process with new chapters and new challenges. And really, the primary places, as I say, where all that takes place is a home. People who've been educated well often are able to educate others, but we all need a little bit of support and a little bit of guidance. Israel is, obviously is a very important place in terms of the Jewish landscape, the global landscape, and come and learn. And it's a whole different experience and in terms of Jewish education, I think it's a very powerful experience where Hebrew is, is, you know, the Sfatem, as they say, the mother tongue of the land of Israel. But wherever you are, whatever you're doing, make sure to know that if you're blessed with children, you're, you're an educator. If you're blessed to teach people, you're an educator. And even if you don't have children and you're not don't teach in a classroom, you too educate by what you do, by who you are. And so living thoughtfully, living mindfully is a crucial thing that we all can do. Definitely. We are all models for others, right? Amen. <laughs> all right, well, Rabbi Johnny Solomon, is, is there anything else you'd like to add before we, we close off here? I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for the great work that you guys are doing. I want to say thank you, as I said before we start the recording, because what you're doing on your podcast is inviting a range of voices. And it's so important to hear from different people, from different perspectives, sharing how they see the world. It's also really important that we're talking about Jewish education because too often, sometimes schools can get politicized. We can talk so much about the cost of education, but to talk about the passion of Jewish education, the love for Jewish education, the importance of Jewish education is critical. And that's what you guys are doing in your podcast. And I salute you and I thank you. Thank you so yeah. much. And we are honored that you were able to join this podcast. And- You're very kind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was so, so nice to meet you. And uh, I, I feel like I'm a little bit like you, you know, I'm a, I wish we could do it, do it again, you know, and do it, do it better. Let's, let's do better it again time. next time. Another time. Bezrat Hashem. Yeah. Well, you did a phenomenal job answering the questions and I know there, there's a lot more there. I'm going to, we'll have to go back and listen to it and, and pull out some of the gems because we know You're very there. kind. Yeah. You're very, very kind. Wishing you great blessings. Look after yourselves and your beautiful baby and thank you for all that you're doing. I mean, thank you. Yeah, and you thank as well. You. But Hatzlach Rava. You too. Yeah, Bye-bye. All the best.